And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a Friday morning where I am recovering from about with the flu, the actual influenza, which made me watch games with a fever. And I thought, am I hallucinating that Paul Reed and Joel Embiid are on the floor together in game five of Philly, Miami? Am I hallucinating that the Grizzlies without John Morant are ahead by 50 points over the Warriors? But one thing I definitely did not hallucinate, and I did not think I was hallucinating it, was another in a long line of James Harden elimination game duds as a disastrous loss for the Philadelphia 76ers that on the surface you could say was was kind of forgivable. Like Joel Embiid is playing with a broken face and a thumb a thumb injury and clearly is not himself. And frankly, like I was scared watching Joel Embiid take occasional blows to the face and worried about his health and well-being. He didn't seem confident or comfortable, rather, playing at full throttle. That's totally understandable. He looked borderline despondent in Game 5. And the Heat, the Heat are awesome. The Heat are like, we don't care. Oh, Kyle Lowry's out. Our $30 million point guard's out. That's cool. Max Struess is going to run 20 pick and rolls. Max Struess is going to be more aggressive than James Harden. We're going to give the ball to Max Struess. Gabe Vincent, cool. All we do is win. We don't whine. We don't complain about who's in and out of the lineup. We don't whine about injuries. We just win. We get creative. We're tougher than you. We just win. And they beat the Sixers, who admitted after the game almost to a man, the Heat are just tougher than them. Um, And now we just have a reckoning uh, in the offseason. And to help us go through that, we have our front office insider, Bobby Marks. How are you? I'm good. How are you? And we have the three most Exciting words, most anticipated words in NBA niche podcasting. What up, Beck? <laughs> Gentlemen, great to be here with you. Great to be in the presence of front office greatness. Bobby, good to see you. Well, look. And, you too, and, and this morning is one of those mornings I, I'm glad I'm not in the front office. I am not, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not in the front office waking up to try Oof. to clean up that mess down there. Or up there. Up in Philly. I'm down here in Florida. So up there. <laughs> there was a play in the second half last night. Of the Heat's win in Philadelphia. I'm going to call it the Heat's win in Philadelphia. Where James Harden brought the ball up and they set a staggered screen for him. With the intent, I believe, to hunt Tyler Hero. And he just picked his dribble up before even using either of the picks. And passed the ball to Shake Milton. And Shake Milton was like, oh, oh that's that's how it's going to be now. I'm just You're just going to give the ball to me? You're, you're James Harden. You make $45 million. You're the former MVP of the league. Okay, Shake Milton had 15 points. James Harden had 11 points. He took nine shots. The only surprise about James Harden laying another egg in an elimination game is that he was not 2 of 11. He was 4 of 9. He's got four 2 of 11 games on his resume. This was a 4 of 9, no free throws. And he just looked like he just looked like he didn't want to be out there. Now, look, what we may learn more about the severity of his hamstring issues or this or that, but... He just looked like he didn't he didn't want the ball. He deferred to Shake Milton. Max Struess was more aggressive than James Harden was at the end of the at the at the other end of the floor. Tyrese Maxey went down swinging. Joel Embiid, poor guy, sitting there saying it's a lose lose situation for me. If I don't play, I'm soft. If I play, I don't play up to my standards. I believe he said that after Game Five. People are going to say, well, you didn't play well. Totally disagree. No one is holding an iota of this against Joel Embiid. 
it it was like a little bit risky that he played. I thought he gave everything he had. He came back after two games with a broken face, dealing with the mask and the thumb. He completely turned the series on its head with his very presence. None of this is on Joel Embiid. That was a worthy MVP level, gritty, toughness effort. And it's interesting, guys. After the game, the, the Sixers, like, you don't hear teams say this very much. Like, they are just tougher than us. We don't have a lot of toughness. Toughness. So, like, you just think, like, well, who's not tough? Maxi, Maxi was playing till the end. That dude's tough. Shake Milton, whatever, tough, I guess. Embiid, no question about it. Shout out Danny Green, by the way. Shout out Danny Green. I hope you're doing better. I hope this injury recovery goes well. One of the great role players of the last 15 to 20 years in the NBA went from being waived to being out of the league to being an essential 3 and D guy who does nothing but be on winning teams. And when he got injured last night, you're like, uh-oh. Because Matisse Thibault, did Matisse Thibault play in the series? Did he, do, did he do one thing? Did he score a basket at any point in the series? Did he do anything? They couldn't, put, they couldn't have him on the floor. And you just wonder, like, who are they talking about when they say toughness? And you just – look, I'm sorry – that the record is the record. I before the Lakers Rocket series in 2020, I watched every every single fourth quarter and crunch time of James Harden's playoff career, particularly focused on high leverage games late in the series, crunch time. I watched every shot attempt, I watched every turnover, I watched every possession. It's just what it is. His shooting percentage is worse than you'd expect. His turnovers number worse than you expect. A lot of his baskets, as I've said many times before, are like Rockets down six with 25 seconds to go, concede a layup to James Harden, inflating numbers that aren't even that good to begin with in crunch time. And so when he has a good game in game four, all the Harden truthers are like, well, where's everybody on this? Here's a high leverage James Harden game. Why is nobody talking about this? Number one, we all talked about it. Number two, this is why the next two games, he's completely invisible. He couldn't even be bothered to rebound last night when P.J. Tucker was just, P.J. Tucker was just moving him out of the way like Bernie from weekend at please move. I'm going to get this rebound. Please. And by the way, I'm not bothering to get back on defense either. I'm sorry that the record is what it is. It's it's just it just is. So Bobby, I'll start with you. What the hell happens now? Well, I mean, there's going to be a um you know, the meeting of the minds as far as what that next contract's going to be. At the very least, he's back for a year, right? I think we can all agree at the very least he will either opt into that contract as that insurance policy for $47.4 million, and he will be back for another year. There is no marketplace for James Harden out there for a $30 million player. You think San Antonio or Indiana or Detroit or Portland or one of these teams is going to pay that? No. Um, so what, what Harden in, in Philadelphia has to do is, is there going to be a compromise here? Is there a compromise on a longer-term deal, but at a significantly less number? Is it at $28 million? Is it $29 million? Is the last year not guaranteed? Maybe we get creative and we put a games clause in there, or maybe you know Philadelphia reach in the NBA Finals and it protects them there. But um, for both sides, Harden opting in to that number is a, is a lose-lose. For Harden, it's because... There's no guarantee what the next payday is going to be in 2023. Another year of James Harden, if this decline continues, that marketplace is not going to be there. 
For why is it, yeah, why yeah. is it a lose for the Sixers if he opts in? Because to me, that's like at least I get to not think about this as much in like the immediate. Like when I go to bed at night, I can think about yeah. something besides this. I, it's a lose for Philadelphia from, from from my perspective is that if they think there's another big whale out there, they can try and go get. Okay, whether it be a Bradley Beal or a Zach Levine, that you need Harden to take a significant salary drop. And 18, 19 million dollars. If you think that there's a Tobias Harris taker out there, yeah, then you need to dump Tobias too, right? Yes, that's why. And the the, the concern is that Harris has another year left. The market for teams wanting to take back another additional year of, of money with a new CBA on the horizon is not appealing as it once was here. Um, so that would be the challenge. So that's from from Philadelphia's perspective, as far as the lose lose, as that you know your flexibility certainly decreases a lot. And plus, you're you know he opts in, you're you're likely going to the tax. Um, you know, the, and you mentioned Danny Green. Poor Danny Green. Danny Green's got a non guaranteed contract for next year. You know, if the news comes out that that's going to be a significant long term, you know, you know injury. He might likely be a roster casualty for Philadelphia to kind of duck under that luxury tax year. So I just look at it as a, as a you know, the opting in is a lose-lose, certainly for Harden. Um, but, I, you know, Philadelphia fans don't want to hear Harden back on a long-term contract. But the, the other alternative is that he just plays out the year and you basically have next year the same roster you had before the trade, right? You've got um, – you know, Embiid and Maxi and, and Harris on the last year of a contract. And then you have, you know, what, $34, $35 million in 2023. And you just kind of play the waiting game there. Um, at least Philadelphia fans can take heart in this. The, the full max is gone. There, oh, there, yeah. There's a 0%. <laughs> oh, yeah. If they give James Harden the full max, Franklin the dog, the Sixers stupid mascot, can host my podcast for a week. That's over. It's not happening. And by, by the way, Daryl Morey loves to be uncomfortable. This is going to be pretty uncomfortable. Everyone buckle up for some discomfort. Howard Beck, what did you see last night? What can we take from this? What can we take from any – I don't know. I'm just – I'm a mess, man. <laughs> uh, first of all, Zach, you mentioned hardened truthers. Are there any hardened truthers in the yes! world left? Yes. And by the way, James Harden's a great player. I voted him many times All-NBA. I voted him MVP once. He's a great player. The track record is the duds are what they are. The numbers are what they are. I watched the tape. I watched the shots. I watched the turnovers. Every Crunch time's hard. Every star that's a high-volume player, when the whole defense is focused on you late in games, your numbers are going to go down. His numbers go down more than you would expect. And like I said in that piece that I wrote, like a lot of his best elimination game games are like, Rockets down 3-0 to the Warriors. James Harden has 36 points. Cool. Like, that's nice. That's a good performance. It didn't matter. This game mattered, and he just he just disappeared. He was not he he just he was like, Shake Milton, take it, man. I, I don't and the ball, the ball didn't come back to me. Yeah. You're James Harden. The ball didn't come back to you. Either you didn't want it back, or you're saying that. Doc Rivers trusts you so little that he was like, we're running the offense through Shake Milton now. I Anyway, say, say something. Uh, 
No, listen, I, I wonder if, if we're already at the beginning of the end for James Harden as a player at that level. He's going to turn 33 in August. The track record, the history of elite guards, high-scoring guards, high-volume guards, once they get past 30, is that usually you go into some sort of decline unless your name is Chris Paul, apparently. And Chris Paul may be distorting our perceptions and expectations of what an all-NBA all caliber guard can do late in their career. But he's a much different kind of guard than James Harden. Also, not, you know, not incidentally, has taken way better care of himself than James Harden and continues to. I I don't want to predict that, that, that a guy has fallen off the, the proverbial cliff, but this happens. We've seen it to a different degree with Russell Westbrook, another high-volume guard who, you know, uh, played sort of a punishing style. I, I just think that unless, like, maybe it's just the hamstring. Maybe this is, James Harden has basically said, I've had these two years of just dealing with the well, hamstring. And that's and that's where the we are at an information deficit compared to the Sixers. If it's really the hamstring, if it's really reversible with time, healing, off diet, whatever off-court changes, adjustments need to happen, as players often do when they get older, if it's really reversible, if 95% of old James Harden is waiting there to be unlocked after three months of work and changes, rehab, whatever, they know better than we do. So yes. that I, I don't know what else to say. They, they, they're, they have all the medicals. We don't. And that's the only scenario under which everything that you and Bobby just went through suddenly reverses, right? If James Harden just needs some time, just needs some TLC, just needs to get healthy and in shape and is and, and is committed to it. That's the thing is like a lot of this still has to do with the uh, doubts we've long had about whether James Harden's commitment to his body and a routine and a regimen and fitness is always there. How about, and if how about he played last night? Like he didn't even care if they won the game. He played yeah. last night. Like he wanted to blend in until the game was over and he could leave. This is part of our information deficit, right? Is he playing that way because there's still something limiting him and this is just as much as I can do. In which case, by the way, I know that guys don't want to talk about injuries and everything else, but when you're in a position like this where you know we're all now judging every last bit of your, your passivity, your seeming disinterest, if it's not passivity and disinterest, then straighten us out. Tell us, you know what, guys, I didn't want to talk about it during the series. I didn't want to talk about it during the season, but here's what's going on. I got this hamstring thing. By the way, I've also got an ankle and a knee and a hip and a back, whatever it else it might be. And then we know, unless it's those things, though, and it may well not be what we really saw was passivity and disinterest and, and it's like some weird kind of he's just checked out. When that happened in Brooklyn, there were reasons, right? OK, well, this isn't working and Kyrie's not playing and Durant's out and Harden's just kind of like lost interest. He doesn't see uh, he doesn't just doesn't see it here anymore. So he's going to force the trade. Fine. At the end of the, his Houston run, I don't see a, a path back to relevance here. I'm checking out. Fine. Where is the the rationale for what we just saw in a playoff series? Well, this is the thing he said before. There's no pressure. With Embiid. There's, there's no pressure on me. There's no, I'm not facing any pressure. I mean, okay. I if that's cool. Like if you that's I I envy that maybe I I envy that sort of like. It's just basketball. Like, what what pressure should I feel? It's just basketball. You know, you you Dwight Howard. I don't want you. Okay, now I have no co-star. 
Spurs knock me out of the playoffs. I'm two for 11. I play so badly, people think I might have a concussion. Give me another co-star. Chris Paul. Cool, we're awesome. We won 67 games. Eh, you're kind of annoying. I don't like you. Get out. <laughs> give me give me my trade. To upend the whole organization with a disastrous trade to get my old running buddy, Russell Westbrook. Uh, we failed again. This fits, this fits not great. We had to trade all of our centers because Russ can't shoot. You know what? I don't want to be here. I want to go to Brooklyn. Now, some stuff happens in Brooklyn that is out of James Harden's control, admittedly. But I now nah, you know what? I'm going to just stop trying on the court because I'm pouting about all the stuff that's happening in Brooklyn, which, again, out of his with the Kyrie Irving situation is not his fault. It's out of his control. James Harden got vaccinated. James Harden was a big part of their team. He came there. He played point guard. He deferred. He was everything the Nets hoped he could be until the hamstring thing happened. Okay, I want to get out of there. I want to go to Philly. Get me to Philly. All right, when does the carousel stop? Like, it... When does it stop? Well, and interesting to to consider this too, because Bobby just laid it out very uh, succinctly. No market out there for James Harden, and certainly no market for anybody who's going to want to extend him to the max, or for the Sixers to extend him to the max, or resign him to a max. And we have two instances of this at the same time, because this is what Brooklyn is facing with Kyrie Irving as well. Like, think about how unusual that is. We've got these two guys. Neither of them should be post-prime, right? We're not talking about guys who are at, like, 35, 36. Like, they're not coming off major injuries. We're looking at two players who were among the best in the NBA. I'm so tired. Elite players. I'm so tired. (laughs) <laughs> and we don't want, and nobody, nobody really is going to be demanding knocking down the door for either I'm of them. I'm so tired, oh. Howard. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's going to happen? Kyrie you know Irving, James Harden, Ben Simmons. I'm just so tired. I wish people could see Zach right now because his hands are over his face. He's pulling a Knicks cap uh, hard over his face. He's rubbing his eyes. And also, instead of having his name on the sign-in screen for this platform we're using, it just says four of nine, not two for 11. I'm just so tired. Which I love. Because when I first signed out, I thought, April 9th, February 11th, what am I missing? What's the deeper symbol? No, it's James Bobby, Harden. Bobby, we, talk, we talked about this. When the Harden trade happened, yeah. we heard from many executives around the Eastern Conference, winners, losers, who's winners? And people would say, you know who really lost this trade potentially is like Miami, Milwaukee, Boston, because the Nets helped themselves and the Sixers helped themselves. Flash forward, the Eastern Conference Finals is going to be Miami and either Boston or Milwaukee. And it looks like, again, as we talked about a few weeks ago, we all lost. All We are currently, right this second, all three of us and our producer Dan losing and Dan's daughter. All of us are losing the James Harden-Ben Simmons trade. All of us. We all lost. I wonder if Daryl today is going through his, his trade notes from the, the Ben Simmons uh, situation and be like, uh, CJ McCollum, that would have been nice. Um, you know, going through the old the old buyer's remorse and uh, well, and, look, and look, out what... look. The process began nine years ago. Nine. It's over we're now. We're gonna do this. Well, we're gonna make this a process. No, thing? no, no, no. But let's just let's. Okay. I mean, like, look. The process was a seismic event, right? The Drew Holiday trade was a seismic event. Bobby, you made a seismic trade the same night as the Drew Holiday trade, which we won't talk about. But the Drew Holiday trade was a seismic event, and it set off the process. The pro- What's left of the process is Embiid and and Harden via Simmons. But also two first round picks out the door. Drummond out the door. Seth Curry out the door. I went through it last week. Fultz gone, Okafor gone, Noel gone, Sarich gone, Covington gone for Butler, who we'll talk about in a second. Who else am I missing? Simmons gone. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing other pro- – Mikhail Bridges traded on draft night, gone. Zaire, Zaire 
Smith gone, gone, gone. The whole process is over, gone. And if you except Embiid and now Harden, and they still haven't made a conference finals. It just it doesn't. It's not saying that tanking doesn't work. It's no plan, quote unquote, works. Every plan to build a championship team, no matter how you do it, is a low odds proposition. That said, when they when we look back at the history of this, the two pivot points that are going to be the story of this era of Sixers basketball are Fultz over Tatum. And the fact that they used the number one pick on a guy who forgot how to shoot. Like, we don't even talk about that anymore. Markel Fultz got traded to Orlando, which is like getting traded to Siberia. Nobody ever talks about you again. The man forgot how to shoot a basketball, and it's still, like, not 100% clear why or how. And then Butler, letting Butler go... And it just it's in their face six games in a row. Letting Butler go was the wrong. Those are the two pivot points. But you just look going forward. I mean, already the stories are coming out. People are are, are just sort of the thinking of, well, how many years are we going to have this? Like, well, Joel Embiid, we can't waste another year of Joel Embiid's prime. What is the roadmap now? I mean, Maxi is a stud. Thank God for them. They drafted Maxi because without him, Embiid's looking around like. How am I winning here? How am I winning the whole thing here? And they're like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know Joel Embiid well. I don't know how he's wired. He seems to love Philadelphia. Philadelphia loves him. It, it, would it shock you in the NBA if another disaster year next year he starts looking around like, do I need to? Do I need to be the next guy? Maybe I don't want to be the next guy to ask for a trade. Do I need to be the best guy? Like, what's the future here? Well, the future is is that you're going to probably have to figure out what you do with Tobias Harris, right? I mean, that's probably your – I mean, if it's a trade ship, I mean, that's – I mean, turning what is owed to him into something else, um, you're going to have your – you're likely going to have your first-round pick because I think Brooklyn's going to defer that until 2023. So what does pick 23 turn into? Um, the Matisse-Dibold situation, you know, like a guy who was basically untradeable – I mean, off the table in any deal back in February – has now gone to a, a, an unplayable player because of his offensive limitations. So that blue chip prospect that you had um, doesn't doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, I mean, from where they were, um, I, I think they're in worse situation right now than they were last year after they, after they lost the Atlanta series. Wow. I mean, I, I think that's I, I think that's how I look at it. Is that just based on what I saw um, with Harden? I think with Harden for me is like. We saw the good Harden in Game Six against Toronto. And we saw the good Harden in Game Four against um, Miami, right? But his his recovery, his recovery time to get back is like he needs like a week off before you know before he has another good game here. And the 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 outlook is basically going to be you've got a tick your your clock is ticking as far as the um you know Embiid has, hasn't even started started the supermax yet which will start um you know in, in, in a few years but that doesn't mean anything like your your timeline is ticking yeah Embiid's far. Embiid's supermax kicks in 23 24 yeah i mean if they re-sign Harden to multiple years i don't know what their avenue to cap flexibility really is it, maybe it doesn't matter because cap flexibility is overrated. If you have star players, you just kind of move the pieces around, whatever. But, you know, Tobias expires in 23-24 after that season. That The following season is, is Maxi's new deal kicks in, which yeah. is going to be a lot of money. Like, I don't it, – it's going to be very interesting to see how they navigate this. Um, Bobby, any any last words on the Sixers before um, 
before Howard and I begin to discuss the other series, the teams that are actually playing basketball now? No, I mean, eventually what happens, and I went through it in Brooklyn, guys, is that like it's like, you know, you're like going to the ATM machine, right? Eventually it's going to spit out and say insufficient funds when you're trying to make another trade. Like you basically have crapped out at the, at the, at the poker table here. And you're just going to run out of trade assets and you're just going to kind of keep on spinning the wheels here. And I think Philadelphia is in that in that position now that they're they're trending towards that. They're trending towards a position where like it's just going to be like as great as you know executive that Daryl is, is like to be able to keep on flipping the roster is just not going to continually to, to happen here. And look, they were 2-2 with Embiid, right? It, it's not it, – I, I do think you have to just sort of – if Harden can get himself right, they were 2-2 with Embiid and an Embiid who was not able to play at full throttle the way that he wants to play, although he fell over six times last night um, because of all the injuries. And again, like I was nervous for him playing with a broken face. When Deadman hit the ball into his face the other day, I was like, oh my God, this is terrifying. So you, you want to say, and and I went over the numbers on the Harden and Embiid pick and roll. It was totally dominant, this and that. Maxie's going to get better and better, blah, blah, blah. So there is a, there is a, tendency to sort of leap to panic time. I, I do think this loss is semi-forgivable in all the ways that I just thought, but like long-term, if Harden, if Harden's not even like 85% of old Harden, and this, the guy who played this series is not, I mean, old Harden, go back and watch the clips. You could not do anything with that dude. You, you could, no one could stay in front of him. I just, I worry, I worry. That's all. All right, Mr. Marks, get to your off-season reports, my friend. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Be well. Good to see you, Bobby. Howard, you want to talk about some basketball? Uh, sure. Do you have any? Do you have any Sixers thoughts before we move on? Uh, no, none in particular. Other than I do think that the last thing you said might be the most important one, which is, you know, they lost the series in part because Joel Embiid had to miss a couple games with a very serious injury, and then was playing with with some sort of limitations. And we'll never know what the you know if 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 Embiid plays the whole series, is it a different series? Do they win the series? Are we forgiving James Harden's uh, deficiencies at the moment? It's gonna it would haunt them in the next round anyway. But at least there wouldn't be the and they still haven't made the conference finals. And James Harden is now just an albatross somehow. Um, it won't. It wouldn't change the reality, the the contract reality, the physical realities of James Harden. But the outcome of this series could well have been different, irrespective of whatever's going on with James Harden. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. They do still have, to the point of the whole process, they still have one of the best five players in the NBA, number two in, in MVP for the second year in a row. The point of the process was to get a Joel Embiid, and they have him. The question becomes because today's NBA works the way it does. How long can you keep that guy and how long can you keep him happy and not demanding a trade given the number of, of missteps they've made along the way? And just the last thought on that, too, is while people sit there and do their chortling over the process and nine years and everything else, it's not one front office. It's like 17 different front offices, uh, including a prior one that was not this front office that made the choice that Jimmy Butler was laughing about as he walked to the locker room last night. I didn't night. see that until this morning. That is... Ice cold. Ice cold. Ice. The Tobi- Tobias Harris over me? <laughs> Whoa. And Jimmy's, you know, look, all due respect to Tobias Harris, Jimmy's not wrong for thinking that or for saying it, um, that he said it out loud and that it was on camera, whether he intended that or it, it, not. It's um, really Ben Simmons over him was really the choice. That was the sure. choice they made. 
Sure, but contractually at that moment, because you've got, you know, your two pillars at that time as the Sixers were Simmons and Bede, and then you had gotten Tobias Harris to try to become a third guy, and then you, you had an opportunity to get Butler, so you did that, and all, now all of a sudden your cap is exploding and you've got issues. And yeah, you're right, but in some respects it was Tobias Harris. And so that, that decision was made, all of these decisions, every single decision that was made by 17 different front offices over the last nine years... 17 may be a little on the high side, but there were a lot of them and a lot of decisions made along the way. And that's put them where they are right now. And, you know, um, yeah, I got, I got, I got nothing else big picture on the Sixers. I just, I, I do think that if your starting point is still that you have the second best player in the NBA and Joel Embiid, uh, at least by MVP voting, you're okay. You just have a lot of stuff to figure out. Look, the Heat, and credit the Heat's defense, they went to a traditional pick-and-roll coverage against Harden. They stopped switching. They went under some screens, which was really interesting. And between their perimeter defenders and Bam, uh, the, the Sixers just couldn't get going anymore. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Very quickly on tonight's games, game sixes in uh, Grizzlies, Warriors, and Bucks, Celtics. Let's start with Bucks, Celtics, which has been absolutely epic from start to finish. The Bucks with a thrilling comeback to go up three games to two in Boston, down 14 in the fourth quarter. Drew Holiday seals the game with two sensational defensive plays, helped by Pat Connaughton on the first one, the block of Marcus Smart along the baseline. Pat Connaughton slowed him down just enough for Drew Holiday to come back into the play. Um, just, I, I mean, if the Bucks win, first of all, I still, that, every game feels so dramatic and so conclusive in a series between teams this good. And by the way, I, the, the chances that this is the quote real NBA finals, I don't, I didn't really, I was less convinced of that than I was with Bucks Nets last year because the Suns and the Warriors are really good and all that. Suns are looking a little ragged. We're going to talk about them later. Warriors are looking a little ragged. Like the chances of this being the real NBA finals are a little bit higher now than whatever they were two weeks ago. If I think game five felt like such a gut punch that your tendency is to just say, well, the Celtics will never recover from that. They're going to Milwaukee. That's it. 
I think the Celtics are still right in this series. Would not surprise me at all if Boston wins game six tonight in Milwaukee. They're plus 14 for the series. And look, if they don't win this series without Chris Middleton, they are going to feel such regret about game three in Milwaukee when they were up one with less than a minute to go and had two wide open threes to get it to four, missed them both. And then game five in Boston when they were up big and uh, that that West Matthews offensive rebound sneaking inside Al Horford and kicking it to Giannis for the first three before the free throw rebound uh, by Bobby Portis to put him ahead. Um, they're just they're just gonna they're just they're just gonna feel deep deep regret. But I don't I don't think this series is over by any stretch. Um, this has been a war, and what's fun about this series is there's little tactical shifts in every game, but every tactical shift is sort of um, narrows the possible offensive options further and further and further to the point that the two teams are just so dependent on their best players to do everything. So Jason Tatum has run the most pick and ran the most pick and rolls he did in any game for the entire season in game five and game four was his second or third most. I can't remember according to second spectrum Giannis as the pick and roll ball handler. Now we think of him as a screener. That's what he's become as the pick and roll ball handler. The last four games have been like first, second, fourth, and fifth for his season in terms of number of times he's the pick-and-roll ball handler. We could talk about Boston's strategy on those plays. I think they're giving away too many switches where they can just get under the screens and sort of make them keep working. Um, but easier said than done. Um, and, and those two guys have become the focus of the series. And the offense, Howard, it looks – you know, you can nitpick – like some choices that both teams make. Like Milwaukee always goes through these these bursts of like just unfocused offense where it's like Giannis has Jason Tatum on him and he calls for a pick to get Al Horford on. Like that doesn't make any sense. And Boston, I thought, was kind of a little a little bit addled down the stretch of game five, just just going at matchups that weren't as good as other matchups they could have easily gotten. But the bottom line is like these two defenses are incredible. Giannis has been incredible on defense. Boston's defense top to bottom is incredible. And they just make it tough on offenses. And I think the big takeaway from this series, look, it hasn't been it hasn't been sexy. It hasn't been his most efficient performance ever. But Giannis is averaging 34 points, 13 rebounds, 7 assists. He's only shooting 47%, but 52% on twos. If you take away the threes, which are a disaster until that one. 52% on twos against a Boston defense that's keeping him away from the rim a lot is pretty damn good. What he's doing on defense is what it is. He just, this feels like his announcement of I'm the best player in the league now. And and maybe you thought it was Durant going into the season. I thought it was Durant going into the season. Durant obviously as a jump shooter and a pick and roll ball handler because of his jump shooting does stuff that Giannis is not going to be able to do. But Giannis it's just it's one of those things where he just keeps coming. He just there, there's a certain fatigue and exhaustion mentally and physically just knowing I got to face this guy 42 minutes every single possession one way or another on both ends of the floor. He's lurking everywhere he's coming at me. He's hitting me. He's not going to relent. And I just think it's been although not the most efficient performance, I think it's been just a really special series for him. No question. And worth noting, not to stir up the ridiculous, overwrought, uh, toxic, obnoxious MVP debate that we now have, but Giannis is the guy left, right? Embiid's now out, Jokic is out, Durant is out, um, you know, Curry, who was an early MVP candidate, is, is still kicking around. 
Um, but the, the, the question about who's the best player in the NBA, something that we've been debating for the last several years, ever since the first time LeBron missed with the Lakers, and it became this, well, whose league is it now? Who's the face of the league now? Who's the best player now? Is it Kawhi? Is it Giannis? Is it Steph? Is it who? Like, Giannis is still standing right now and still just dominating everybody in his path. And I think... It's funny who who had the the tweet that made the rounds last night about uh, the run and dunk guy is still here, but all your bag guys are gone. I, I'm botching the the living heck out of this uh, this what was a very clever tweet, and it sounds very unclever uh, coming out of my mouth that, uh, Friday morning. Um, it doesn't matter that he's not the greatest shooter in the league. It doesn't matter that he doesn't have the quote unquote skill set or the bag. Uh, in the way that we typically define it, of a lot of guys, um, I should know that Luca is still around too. He was well. It's funny you, it, Tatum is still it, around. It's too, funny so. you mentioned Luca because it does feel like those two, and the West is wide open now. It looks wide open. Yeah, we're gonna talk about coach that series with Coach Van Gundy soon. It does feel like those two, and obviously there are tons of other guys. There's the Phoenix guys. There's Morant. There's a mil- There's the Clippers coming back next year. Jokic and Embiid. It does feel like at some point, Giannis and Luka from across the conferences are going to be staring at each other as the most dominant, singular, relentless sort of they're coming at me every single time players in the league, and. We are all going to be craving the finals showdown between them that we never got with Kobe and LeBron. Kind of, it does feel a little bit like that. But please continue about we, about. We got, yeah. I mean, look, we got KD LeBron, which was pretty pretty awesome. Um, we had, uh, you know, you know, there was there was some Kawhi and LeBrons and so, whatever. We have like we've had various versions, uh, but uh, Luka Giannis. Could be amazing if the Mavericks eventually get there. I'm not sure that they're there yet. I, I assume you would view the same. Oh um, no, this the Suns are favorite in Game Seven. They should be. They're home. Giannis Giannis is officially the guy that we're now. And this is not again not the voter fatigue thing. Giannis is the guy that we're officially now just kind of um, numb to and uh, taking for granted all the time. Um, I say that as one of the people who did actually have him at the top of my MVP ballot. So. Uh, my my view of this discussion obviously is 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 different. Um, we are taking him for granted already, and uh, if he, if they're back in the finals, we won't. And if they win the finals and he's MVP two straight seasons in the finals, uh, maybe we won't. Um, but we'll be right back to to next season having the same silly debate over again about um, you know who's at the top of the league. Um, I I I do note that in this series, like you know, so Jason Tatum. This was a, a big breakthrough season for him in terms of the way that that he has led the Celtics, in terms of the way he has expanded his game, in terms of the way he has made playmaking more of a priority, and he pushed his way into the into the you know lower tier of the MVP discussion and, and was on a lot of ballots. Um, Tatum has struggled in the games that they've lost. Worth noting, you know, uh, correlation, causation, blah blah blah. But you know, he's he's six for eighteen in the first game they lose in this series. He's four for nineteen. In the second game, they lose in 12 for 29 uh, in that game five. So, I mean, it's like you go, you often go as your best player goes, especially if you have an MVP caliber player. If you have a Tatum or a Giannis or an Embiid or a Jokic or whatever, like you're, you're often going as far as your guy will take you. And um, so is Boston going to 
push this to a game seven? I mean, I, I think I we'll hope start so. with Jason Tatum. I hope so. Yeah. Well, Tatum is uh, 14 of 46 on threes for the series. And Milwaukee has done a nice job mixing up its defense. Like, And this is the thing about Milwaukee. They, so they started the last game in their, in their drop-back scheme, which they always do. And Tatum hits a pull-up three over a really deep drop. And it just, when that happens, it looks bad, right? It looks like, why are they letting him walk into these shots? But then the next two possessions are a missed pull-up three and a missed pull-up two. And you kind of don't remember those as well as the make. And that's the bet Milwaukee is making, is you just can't make so many of those pull-up jump shots. They're too hard, even for Jason Tatum. But then late in the game, they started switching more, uh, including with Giannis and Portis. And the Giannis-Portis two-man combination without Lopez has won them this series so far. They're plus 31 in 72 minutes. And I think this switching caught Boston a little bit off guard because they, they weren't quite expecting him to switch, particularly with Giannis. And one thing that switching with Giannis does is it takes him away from the rim. And Tatum had that one dunk where Giannis was lifted up somewhere on the floor and Tatum just blew by somebody and dunked it. Um, and and you just wonder, like, did that work for one game in Boston? Some of these things, like, some of these things that work in a playoff game, the NBA is so smart that coaches don't even try them again in the next game because they know the other team is going to be ready for them. And I thought the switching caught Boston off guard. I thought their offense just was unfocused in the last bit of the game. And, you know, the other thing is Boston won game four and Milwaukee going small with Horford as the only big man. No Grant Williams, no Time Lord who's been out, no Tice. Um, and that had the same effect of Giannis was guarding Derek White very often. He was guarding Marcus Smart when Boston went small in game five. And guarding those guys is just different than guarding a big man. Um, they, they are higher on the floor more often. They handle the ball more often. And Giannis was kind of taken out of his rim protection area. And Boston went plus 19 with small ball lineups in game four. But in game five, just plus zero because they got killed on the glass. It'll be interesting to see how that works. But yeah, Giannis, my point is all those lineup machinations, a lot of them are about trying to get Giannis out of the way on defense because he's just so fearsome as a rim protector. And, you know, we can sit here and say, why don't they go under these picks for Giannis? He's not a jump shooter. Just go under. Well, they try. And then they, they give up a switch for Tice or Jalen Brown eventually. Part of, the reason, part of the reason is they're so scared of him. If you go under a pick, if you're a half second late, if the pick just shoulder checks you and you stumble a bit, he's at the rim. He's by you at the rim. And he's become such a good passer now that people are afraid to send too much help to him. And he just starts making you overthink all of these strategies. He's just his greatness is sort of imposing itself on every part of this series. And boy, oh boy, Boston! I picked Boston to win the series in six. Obviously, that pick's going to be wrong already, even if they win in seven. I'm just super impressed with Milwaukee finding a way, despite the fact that when Giannis is off the floor, they're a disaster. They're minus 32 in 44 minutes with Giannis off the floor. They have no offense at all, other than praying Drew Holiday hits step back jumpers. But I just I'm fascinated to see how tonight unfolds because it feels like the series has reached its equilibrium and it's just like we're leaning so heavily on our stars. Who's going to show up the most? I also just wonder how much of a gut punch that was. We had it was really interesting the other night how differently the Celtics and the Warriors lost those games, right? Um, The Warriors just get absolutely blown out, humiliated, historically uh, blown out. And the Celtics just 
you know, fritter away a lead down the stretch and have watch Drew Holiday just like literally steal the game from them. And what's what's the bigger toll? What's the what's the bigger psychic uh, the dent to your psyche between those? Because I feel like you know teams get blown out and it looks worse. I think you 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 look at that as as the Warriors and you just say, well, everything fell apart and it's whatever. And, and the the whole cliche of flushing it is easier in in that regard. I think what Marcus Smart had happened to him, what Drew Holiday did to him, what the Celtics just experienced, like that's. You know, uh, I, I feel like that's the harder thing to overcome. They had it in their hands, and now they're they're facing elimination. Um, I also think that that you you know you mentioned Giannis and the decisions he's making. Like, there's a calmness there now. Um, you know, we always saw this in him. You know, uh, just personality wise, when he talks about the game, when he's he's at the post game podium in the finals last year and everything. The way he plays the game right now, too, I just I feel like it it fits. Like there's, like we always talk about like these these the, the best players in the league as having a certain intensity and the desire and the competitive uh, zeal and everything. And and Giannis has it, but like the fact that he can talk about it so calmly, he's still very young in his career. This isn't like late stage Kobe where uh, you know every everything is just gravy in your career. Giannis is still solidly in his prime, and the way he's Talking about the game afterward, the way he's seeing the game in the moment, I feel like exudes the same level of of calm and and just methodical thought about it. I don't know. I just I'm very impressed by um, how quickly he's reached the stage where it, you know, you could still have all the pressure in the world, all the weight of the world, and maybe it's the fact he won the championship, and maybe that he's already got two MVPs under his belt. I just I really am impressed by um, the this Zen he exudes uh, win or lose. And, and again, that translates to the court too, and the decisions he's making. with And the, and the Middleton absence, I, people know that it's big, but he's their best pick and roll ball handler. And without him, the Bucks have had to pivot to a lot of Drew Holiday pick and roll, which is fine. A lot of Giannis pick and roll, which is something they've moved away from using him more as a screener. And then Boston's like, we're going to put our weakest guys on Connaughton and Grayson Allen. And like, if you want to use those guys in the pick and roll or for dribble handoff action with Giannis, go ahead. We don't think they can beat us. And the Bucks are finding a way to score enough, just enough. And that's mostly because Giannis just gets into the cracks of the defense and imposes his will. Let's talk a little bit about Grizzlies Warriors um, before we go. I just, the, the Grizzlies almost won game four. In Golden State without John Morant, their offense fell apart down the stretch. I had no idea what they were even trying to do. Um, and then they destroyed the Warriors in Game 5 in Memphis. Whoop that tricking right in Steph Curry's face with Draymond Green dancing dancing around. Um, I couldn't be more impressed with the Grizzlies. Uh, the The record without – without I think there's – it's interesting. I think there's a difference. but there, There's clearly a difference for the Grizzlies between – Playing without John Morant when he rests during games and when they're off, which in which their offense is totally falling apart in the playoffs, and playing without John Morant when he's just out and they know he's going to be out, and I think the decision to start Stephen Adams has fit right into that because it's not just about offensive rebounding and size and bludgeoning the Warriors' small lineups. Adams is passing from the elbows unlocks like all that split action running around that Desmond Bain does. It just unlocks another ingredient in their offense. It unlocks their identity without Morant. And they're just good. They just have a lot of good players. Like this, this, 
this record without Morant is not a fluke. Um, the Grizzlies are just a good team. And the Warriors went down to Memphis and screwed around, said we got game six at home. Okay, you better win. Because if you go to game seven in Memphis, this team is not scared of you at all. They're guarding your stuff. Very, Their guards, Dylan Brooks, Tyus Jones, Desmond Bain, are really good at mucking up those little, like they're not guarding Draymond at all, right? So Draymond has the ball, no one's on him. So what does Draymond do? He pivots into a handoff because if my screen hits you, there's no one around because you're not guarding me. Clay's going to be open, Steph's going to be open, and those guys have missed a lot of good shots. But the Grizzlies guards are really good at mucking that stuff up, getting in between those screens, being physical. And 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 the Warriors just look discombobulated. Just what are they trying to do on offense? Sometimes they run a lot of pick and roll. Sometimes it's just Draymond kind of like running around searching for whatever he wants to do. Sometimes Jordan Poole's doing a lot of stuff and Steph Curry's over in the corner. You're like, dude, can we get Steph Curry involved a little bit? Draymond has 24 points in five games, Howard. 24 points in five games, 28 assists and 20 turnovers. Just not good enough. And without Morant, the Grizzlies have no weak spots really to hunt on defense. So they might try to hunt Tyus Jones a little bit more. Tyus Jones is hiding a lot on clay. Um, and they're just finding – they just have good players. Like slow-mo comes in and runs a bunch of pick and rolls. Like, oh, a slow-mo Brandon Clark pick and roll. A slow-mo DeAnthony Melton pick and roll. That kind of worked. Dylan Brooks didn't take 9,000 bad shots in game five. I I would pick the Warriors to win this game because I trust their championship pedigree. I trust them at home. But the Grizzlies are, are good. And that loss, I just get nervous when teams are like, oh, we got game six at home. You know what you don't have at home? Game seven. If we were to do like a, um, a sliding scale bar graph or something or whatever, and we were trying to do the proportion of complaining to refs ratio to your stature in the league is slow-mo at the top of that thing don't besmirch slow-mo i will not have any besmirching of slow-mo on this podcast he complains a lot if anybody is listening to this kyle anderson let it be known i defended you and let it be known that i absolutely love watching you play basketball slow-mo we can focus on slow-mo's limitations (laughs) his slowness he is weaponized slowness howard it would be like me (laughs) if i weaponized I don't like what's. The, I have a lot of limitations. Like, imagine if I he's weaponized his own slowness. His pump fake, he doesn't shoot threes, and his pump fake still fools everybody because he extends the ball so high. It almost looks like it's out of his hand, and people fall for it. I love and he does the thing, Howard, where you're dribbling up at him, and he, he my favorite kind of steal in the NBA. It's it's just one on one. He just reaches out his giant long arm, plucks the ball right out of your just like okay thanks, and then like hits it to himself and he's off the other way. Thanks for the ball. I'm gone. No slow-mo slander, Howard. I am not How sl- dare you? I, I'm, I am not slandering, besmirching, or anything else, uh, his basketball presence or skills. I'm simply saying that uh, among the non-all-stars in the league, he seems to uh, do an awful lot of complaining to referees. I was at games three and four, and so it was one of those things where at a certain point you just start to notice you know, you notice things that you don't notice on TV because you're seeing the whole court. And I'm just like, my God, he has not shut up. Um, I'm sorry. I, I I apologize for besmirching one of your favorite players. I was not besmirching. Uh, so the thing is, for the Warriors, like, obviously, they don't have the firepower they once had. They don't have, even when we talk about pedigree, they don't have the pedigree they once had. They still have Steph and a version of Clay and a version of Draymond. But they don't have Andre Iguodala at the moment. And if they did, it would still be an older version of, of Andre Iguodala. But I, I think they could really use him right about now. 
They don't have Sean Livingston. They don't have like every everybody else. Porter, that was part Porter, of that. who's who's been huge for them and is like a perfect warrior, just setting little flare yes. screens and pin ins, all just like nerdy warrior stuff. Otto Porter does. He got hurt in Game Five. They, they yesterday when I was talking to some people, they were optimistic he was going to be all right. We'll see, but um, yeah, they don't have. They're missing some guys. And but the on the other hand, Howard, Steph and Clay are. I'm looking at it now. Twenty nine of ninety four combined on threes which is like 30 percent you got to figure like there's an eruption coming at some point yes you know and the grizzlies just like maybe it doesn't maybe maybe next season not in the next two games <laughs> um and i think we have more confidence that that will be steph uh in game six than, than maybe clay i mean somebody said this to me I, I wish i could remember who told this who said this to me i think it was in the last day or two the idea that maybe clay has hit the rookie wall that after two years, two and a half years out, and he's back and he's fully healed from his Achilles and he's fully healed from his ACL and he's done all of the, the, the ramping up and the, all that other stuff that you do to, to get ready to start playing again. And he's been playing again, but he's been playing again for a few months. And is this the, the, the veterans version of the rookie wall where it doesn't matter how much ramping up and conditioning and basketball training and all that stuff you did, he hasn't had to play this many games in this short a period of time since he first went down three years ago. I mean, it's, and we're getting close to the three-year anniversary of, of um, his first injury. And so is is that it, you know? And you hope it's it, you hope that that's the explanation as opposed to, well, th- this is just who Clay is now at, at 32, you know, years old um, and, and post two serious injuries. But uh, maybe there's a Jordan Poole eruption coming. Jordan Poole has, has had a phenomenal season. He was a, a total dud in game five. Like they have places they can go, I just don't think it's as reliable or as automatic as it once they, was. They've looked weirdly out of sync. Like even the last yes. two or three games, Steph and Draymond have had some miscommunications where they're not on the same page about where Steph going to cut, where's the handoff going to be, where's the pass going to go. It's like very normally those guys can play with their eyes closed without talking at all. It's been very, it, they've just been discombobulated, and they need to get recombobulated. Uh, immediately because, you know, look, don't trifle with the Grizz. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't know that I've ever been more impressed by a team um, lacking, you know, established superstar talent, right? Like John ja Morant is an absolute stud and they, they can win without him consistently over the course of the season. And then in a, in a, in a critical playoff game against a team with, with championship pedigree, um, I, I don't even know what to make of it anymore, Zach. And like, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr. obviously is a great player and they've got a lot of other really good players and they play their butts off. And we always talk about how much we admire the teams that just play hard every possession, every no second. No weak or... spots. Right. But but you, again, you, you still look across the roster and say like, what the hell is happening here? Like they have no John Morant and there's no star power here and stars rule in this league. It is immutable, an immutable law of the NBA, and these guys are are kicking butt just by kicking butt. And I don't know that, that there's another ver- even the old grit and grind Grizzlies. Okay, but they had you know prime Zach Randolph and prime Marcus Saul and prime Ish and and prime Mike Conley. And I, I this is this is something else entirely. Uh, and it's 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 just incredibly impressive. No matter what happens in this series, they might actually win this series. If they don't, it's still one of the most impressive performances I've seen. Uh, Jaron Jackson. They don't, by the way, they don't even have a great screener when Clark is off the floor. Someone who can really like kind of bend the defense, suck defenders in. They just kind of make do with their split game, with creative actions and all that. Jaron Jackson has stepped up the last two games, 42 points. He's gotten 14 free throw attempts. Warriors have what would be 
the worst turnover rate and the worst opponent free throw rate in the league for the regular season in this series. It's just not been it's not been clean. And it makes you wonder how open the West actually is. Um, by the way, congrats to Zach Kleiman for winning Executive of the Year. Did you see the photo yes. that the NBA tweeted out of Zach Kleiman for winning Executive <laughs> of the Year? <laughs> I'm laughing because, yes, I did. And when I saw it yesterday, <laughs> my first thought, I'm, apologies in advance to everybody for this, but like, oh, they used his bar mitzvah photo. Well, I um, just, you can't, we've got to <laughs> stop this thing where everyone's holding a basketball all the time. Uh, Why is he wearing a suit holding a basketball? Why? What is he going to do? Just, what is he going to do with the basketball? But, just uh, oh yeah, I'm just <laughs> it's just me. It's just me casually tossing a basketball up and down. Just be, ca- be you can hear the photographer being like, just just hold it, man. Be cool. Just be casual. Like pretend you're chatting with your friends. Just <laughs> caress the ball. Just, no, just we don't need the basketball in the photo. Uh, also, he's 33, but he looks 15 years younger than that. Uh, Zach, Zach Kleiman has done an incredible job with the Grizzlies. He, he flies below the radar on purpose. Uh, he doesn't do a lot publicly. He's not a household name. A lot of people, fans, probably just learned that he was the lead executive of the Grizzlies yesterday when he won the award. But he and his front office have done an incredible job around, you know, with, with both big and small um, decisions over the last couple of years. So congrats to Zach Kleiman. Apologies for my my uh, my warped jokes. Uh, but uh, yeah, no more basketballs. Like I don't know what a, a GM or a team executive executive of the year should be holding in that photo. Maybe it's a spreadsheet. Maybe it's a, a cap sheet. Maybe it's the CBA. I don't know. I think uh, old, you go old. The CBA might might wear your back you out. That's the old, thing's too heavy. I think you go old school, sitting at your office desk, landline in your hand, cigar in your mouth, <laughs> and like a glass of whiskey. On the table nearby. Just just go old school. Go Don Draper. Uh, how, uh, about the Joe Dumars photo with the phone to both ears? Yeah, that one is copyrighted. We're just going to leave that one to Joe yeah, that's, D. That's Dumars alone. Howard Nobody Beck else can pull that off. of Sports Illustrated has a great piece this week about profanity in the NBA. Oh, no. My favorite thing. Oh, no. And uh, is the host of the Open Floor podcast. Uh, or the crossover, crossover. The crossover podcast. Sorry. There's too many SI podcasts. I can't listen to all the podcasts. Howard Beck, your work is phenomenal. I love you. I'll see you soon, bud. Thank you, Zach. Good to see you. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. All right, for a game seven 
of this magnitude with a 64-win team and Luka Doncic, who my next guest just called the toughest matchup in the NBA on this podcast a couple weeks ago. I needed a tactician. I needed a coach. I needed a mind who could help us look ahead to what's going to happen Saturday in Game 7 between the Mavs and the Suns after the Mavs blew Phoenix out in Chris Paul's fourth straight kind of game. Jeff Van Gundy, thanks for popping on for a quick hit on short notice to talk about Game 7. Hopefully not the only Game 7 we get. You're in Milwaukee tonight for Game 6. I'm rooting for all Game 7s. Coach, how are you? Doing well. So what did you see in Game 6 that worked for Dallas? And what did that make you think ahead to Game 7 about? Well, I do like how they're protecting Doncic. Uh, They're not switching him on to guys. Like when he's involved, they sort of soft trap and then they rotate um, so that they can't go at him. Uh, I think that has been a really good adjustment over time. but th- those these games where the turnovers are so exorbitant, you know, game five with Dallas, game six with Phoenix, it's really hard to evaluate when you play so poorly in the in the very basic fundamental areas. I mean, you know, the turnover discrepancy last night was, I think, what, like 15 or something to that. You know, and then the, turnovers for the Suns, very yeah, uncharacteristic. Yeah. And, and Booker had a ton. Uh, Paul had a ton. So, you know, to me, these last two games of this series have been incredibly hard to evaluate from a scheme standpoint because the play has been very, very sloppy for the road team. It's funny you mentioned. So obviously, you know, game two was when the Suns just went at Doncic mercilessly, and they switched, and the Suns destroyed him. Since then, they haven't switched as much. Lucas played much harder on defense, has been much more engaged. But I'm interested to hear you said – I'm interested to ask you about this because I thought Phoenix had been doing well when they would run like a Booker-Crowder pick-and-roll to hunt Doncic. And they would, like you said, they would kind of soft-trap Booker. And he would kick the ball to Crowder, who was wide open – and Dallas would send a third guy kind of flying into Crowder's line of sight. And basically it was like, we're going to force you to make, we're going to force your secondary guys to make plays against a scrambling defense. And I thought Phoenix had done pretty well out of that. Like, you know, they're pump and go, hitting bridges, bridges hits eight and dunk, blah, blah. They would get open threes out of it. What, what changed? Like, it didn't seem like they were getting to that. It didn't seem like Dallas was sending that third guy as aggressively last night? Maybe that's because Luca was recovering earlier and their defense was just cleaner. Like, what, what changed in that regard? Well, I thought they were, you know, they did a good job in full rotating. But when that happens, to me, you're going to have other driving opportunities. And to me, that's where Aiton has to be dominant. Either they have to search him out as the ball moves, where he gets a, a paint catch and a score easy at the rim versus you know, some of these elongated jump hooks. And they have to crush – he's got to crush them and or the backup center has to crush them on the offensive glass. And, you know, that's not Phoenix's, you know, game really. And, you know, the three-point, you know, volume threes is not really their game. And so I think Dallas has done a good job. I think the plan is solid. But it was a similar plan in game – five 
and they got crushed. And why? Again, I thought their offense was their worst defense. And I thought that same thing about Phoenix last night. I thought their offense was their worst defense because the turnovers, you just can't play with that discrepancy of turnovers and think other than, you know, like basically a miracle, you're going to have a chance to win. And so I think that's Dallas's, um, you know, that's got to be the number one thing going into Phoenix. They got to play good offense. And I think that starts with Doncic coming off those pick and rolls to score and attack the basket versus, you know, thinking he's, they're going to come and he's going to have to find people. The, the Mavs offense against the Phoenix defense has also been really interesting. You just mentioned Doncic looking to score. Um, obviously, the whole floor changes when Powell goes out. Powell's a big minus in the series. Kleba has been sensational. I think Kleba's defense has been really good too. Um, I just it, it I felt like in game in game five, Dallas lost its offense a little bit. They just devolved into one on one play. Like Luca would just be standing in the corner while Brunson was doing his stuff, and they got a little bit more creativity back in game six. And Phoenix, I thought, lost their offense a little bit in game six. Part of which, I know, J.J. Redick talked about this on the broadcast. Dallas started switching a little bit more with Kleba on the pick and roll. Even, sometimes late in the shot clock. Sometimes late, like kind of an improvised switch. Um, which risks putting a smaller guy on Aiton and Kleba on Chris Paul, maybe. Um, I thought that kind of slowed Phoenix a little bit. Um I don't know. Maybe that's something that you just throw away. We did it once. It worked once. It won't work again. But I, I thought it kind of flummoxed Phoenix. Did you see anything? And what, what do you do if you're the Suns? You just say like, let's if, if they do that, let's just like give it back to Chris and let him attack Kleba one on one. What or try to enter the ball to Aiden? What do you do? Well, I think overall you hit on something that I think is is so important in these playoff series, which is getting into whatever you're running as early as possible on the shot clock. So if they do, if they are going to switch, you have as much time as possible to exploit it, either the ball handler that comes off or you move it and you find the mismatch later, or you want to post, you know, eight and against a smaller guy. I thought Phoenix throughout the year does as good a job as any team in the league in exploiting switching because Chris Paul is so intelligent and that, he does a great job of finding Aiton uh, deep in the paint where Aiton can punish, you know, smaller defenders. Uh, so I, I think it's going to be interesting. I think Aiton, you know, obviously Paul and Booker have to play much, much better. But I think Aiton has to have more of a dominant personality uh, in, in game seven. And this is an odd series. You don't find too many series that through six games going into a seventh that the home team has won every game. Uh, I don't know when the last series has happened where it's gone all, you know, to the home team. Um, so this is a very unique series in many ways. And as close as the Boston Milwaukee series has been, there haven't been really nail biters in this series. It's been, you know, uh, the road teams um, in the last couple games. Listen, I think they would even say they play disappointing games. Yeah, I thought Dallas – look, it's it's interesting because 
I don't know what you've seen, but I've seen when Dallas goes five out, right? That's how they beat Utah. We're just going to spread the floor with Kleba at the five or even Finney Smith at the five. We're just going to drive you because we don't think you can stay in front of us. I think Phoenix has generally been smart to say, we don't think you can beat us that way. Our defenders are better than Utah's defenders. We're going to stay home. We're going to stay home on your shooters. We're not going to give you open threes. And sometimes you're going to score on us. Jalen Brunson is going to make some tough twos. Luke is going to make some step back threes. But we just don't think you can beat us that way. And it's and I thought in game five, Dallas sort of went to like the most simple version of that, which is everyone just stands around. In game six, they would run a pick and roll, get a switch. Luca would dance a little bit. Then he would give the ball up, get it back, and go into another pick and roll and get a better. When Luca touches the ball twice on a Dallas possession, I feel like that's really healthy for the Mavs. I just I, I felt like Dallas got away from itself in Game Five and in Game Six. It found itself. But what? It, like, how do you find the right balance when you're playing that style, and it's five out and it's just one on one? How do you find the right balance between predictable and sort of keeping everyone engaged? And what do you think of Phoenix basically being like, we don't think we can beat you can beat us that way? Is that the correct way to play it? Well, I think you can't win big in the NBA now without having good to very good individual defenders. You see it in the Boston series right now. Grayson Allen, you know, had a little trouble, uh, you know, in game five. And, you know, that was hard. And and then you see Drew Holiday, you know, with some of his great defensive play. Like, you know, so I, I think you hit on it and it's right. You have to have enough movement to spread the defense out while attacking with your best players against the best possible matchups. And I find that very, very challenging in today's NBA where there's less movement on most teams. You know, flow, you know, that that term came in way back uh, when Jason Kidd, you know, played for Dallas, right? That whole idea of flow offense. But flow offense now has really turned into uh, transition pick and roll and then play off of that. If you're in drop, you know, we're going to do X. If you're in switch, we're going to do something. You know, so it, – it, and then it comes back to offensively, you better have guys who can go off the dribble. And interestingly for Dallas, right, like if you look at it, they have two guys who can go off the dribble in Brunson and Doncic. And then Dinwiddie is that guy – who sometimes plays really good, like he did last night, uh, sh- shot it well, and then other games he's been, a, you know, a really net negative. And so to have a third guy who can go and make a play when you are so isolation heavy, uh, I think is critical. I don't think there's anything wrong with Phoenix's plan. I just think they have to, you know, listen. You got to run. You got to be better offensively. You know. It, to, to have a chance. You cannot be as inept as they were last night in the basic fundamentals. It's just, it's a losing formula. I mean, obviously, this is a huge game. It's game seven. But I remember we did a segment on NBA Today a few weeks ago where we, did, we were all asked to pick which team is under the most pressure in the playoffs. And the sexy answers were, you know, Utah, given all the drama there, and, and Philly with Harden, and we saw what happened last night. And independently, both Kendrick Perkins and I, who we rarely agree on anything, picked Phoenix. And the producers were surprised. Like, Phoenix, they just kind of just do their thing. They win. I'm like – and our answer was the same. Is like, 
you only get so many shots at it. Like, this is a great team, 64 wins. Um, last year kind of snuck up on people. It felt like gravy. Chris Paul's 36, 37 years old. This is a massive moment for the Suns. And, and Dallas, I don't really even think they thought we might be able to win the West this year after the Porzingis trade. Like, they might be able to win the West. I mean, the Warriors look a little, I don't know what the hell is going on there. The Grizzlies, Morant's been out. This is a major, major game, but Phoenix is under a lot of pressure. Like, this would be a pretty crushing loss, obviously, for the Suns. Yeah. I mean, you know, Chris Paul, you know, he, he had played so well. He hasn't played well uh, in the last few games. And, I mean, he's a great player, and Booker's a great player who had a bad night. I mean, like, you need your best players to play their very best when their best is needed. And, like, you're right about Dallas. To me, when you have Luka Doncic, you have a chance. Yeah, and by, de- by definition, I, we have to call them a contender right now because they're going to Game 7 against Phoenix. And, and their team is, I think even they would say, kind of a work in progress. Like They didn't view this as like the end product of Luka Doncic's prime, and here they are with a chance to get to the West Final. He's that good by himself. He is. I mean, like he is like incredibly special and i also think you know what happens when you overachieve in the regular season which phoenix did for their talent right to me they're a you know they're a a talented team but they're not an overwhelming talented team a dominant team like their record says they are and because of that the expectations get jacked up and when the playoffs start and everybody's intensity and attention to detail comes into focus, whereas Phoenix, to me, played as focused a basketball as you could ask a team to play from game one through game 82. When, when the focus comes, you know, the same and rest is the same, man, is, or, or is anybody saying like, oh, Phoenix is so much better than Dallas? I mean, I, I don't think so. And I think that's why, you know, Chris Paul at this age, uh, you know, he's had chances before, but, you know, just last year, right, they were up 2-0 and it got away from him, you know, and, and man, Milwaukee played great. But you don't get many bites at the apple. And Chris Paul's had a few. You have to say this is his, be- you know, next best one from last year. Um, but this Dallas team, you know, I was I would suspect Phoenix is going to win, but you got Luka Doncic and you got three-point shooting. And when you have Luka Doncic and three-point shooting, you don't know, you know, when an explosion could happen. I mean, it, you know, it, it, they're dangerous. Chris Paul's last four games combined, four games, 37 points, 25 assists, 18 turnovers, two free throw attempts. So 25 assists to 18 turnovers is very bad by his standards. 37 points, so nine a game. No, he's been bad. I mean, that's just... You know, and and again, if you're a really good, pl- you know, a great player like Chris Paul has been, you acknowledge it. It's not a hater to say he's been bad. It's it's factual. You know, you watch the games, you look at stats. He hasn't been good enough. And last night, Booker wasn't good enough. And those two guys, what they have a combined thirteen turnovers last night. Like, that's not good enough. And so, you know, if you're Monty Williams. Is there strategic things? 
that you do differently? Maybe. A big difference to me, Zach, from last year to this year is I thought campaign was a huge positive last year. And so far, well, he's not even playing now, but the the Shamit pain, like, it's not giving them what they need. Well, we like, saw we saw Craig last night got in the rotation late. It's unclear if Monty Williams is just sort of let's let's see how he looks. Same with I don't like the idea of Phoenix taking its centers off the floor because I, I feel like their centers are part of their strength. Um, but two games in a row in semi garbage time, Monty went super small with like Jay Crowder at the five. I don't love that look for them, but it was interesting that he did it. But yeah, the pain thing is big. Are you worried at all that they're just kind of – that they're beating up Chris Paul? Like I think that might be a little bit of what's happening. So if you look at the numbers, I did the tracking data today. He's been the defender – Chris Paul has been the defender on the screener in pick and rolls. The four games in which that's happened the most have been – this entire season have been the last four games. So they're making him work on defense. And when he switches on to Luka – Luca is beating the hell out of him. Brunson's beating the hell out of him. I thought it was interesting they put Finney Smith on him for good parts of last night's game after it had been Bullock for the most part. I think to put more size on him. I, I, I'm If I'm a Suns fan, I'm optimistic I'm going home. I'm optimistic my offense and, and Monty Williams talked about we need to get we need to use our motion and our, our actions to get to our matchups. I think they'll play more Sunsy offense. But I am worried that they're wearing Chris Paul down in this series. If you're a great player, which Chris Paul is, you don't get worn down. And you don't look for bailouts from your coaching staff. You don't look for excuses from people. Like the least worry I would have is Chris Paul going into game seven. I think Chris Paul will be phenomenal. I, I, now, could they lose with Chris Paul being phenomenal? Yeah, they could still lose because that other dude can just be historic. And, you know, I mean, he's that good. But I, I really do believe Chris Paul, you know, he, he hasn't played well. And I would suspect he would be – he's been even tame. He he hasn't even done anything borderline dirty lately. Like <laughs> – like, that's when he's at his best. You know Chirping. why? Because he fouled out doing all his Chris Paul stuff. That's why. Yeah, but that was one That was one game. Like, he needs to, like, be on – he has achieved because he's got great skill, intelligence, but also he walks that fine line uh, where sometimes he tips over, but most times he's, like, right on that line, which gives him a competitive advantage because he is a great competitor. And so – I think, you know, he needs to walk that fine line uh, in Game Seven. It's funny you say that because I, I earlier this week I talked about how I hate I hate when he does the thing where he's bringing the ball up the court and all he has to do is dribble. That's all he's got to do, and he stops and he goes sideways and he sticks his butt out because he wants to create contact, and that's how he got his fifth foul um, yep. in the in Game Four, I believe, when he fouled out. And I said, like, I just wish he would just play. Just play. And I talked to someone later that day who heard the podcast and knows Chris. He said, you know what? You're underestimating, though. That's why a six-foot-nothing guy is who he is because he can't just play. It's all part of the package. It's all wired that way. He's got to have an edge at all times. And if you take that 
one little thing, that one stupid move you're complaining about, it's part of the deal. If you take that away, you don't get Chris Paul anymore. I, I thought that was interesting. I think you nailed it, by the way, about, about pace. I think the Suns are going to come out flying. I think you're going to try to get into stuff early. They had a couple plays where they said picks at half court for Chris and Devin. I thought that was smart. Give them a little runway. They had a couple plays where they set picks at the free throw line for them, which I thought was also smart. Like if you drop back, now we're just walking into a 15-footer. And I think we're just going to see like Devin Booker flying off a screen on the sideline from Aiton. So you either switch it or or we're in motion. I just think we're going to see more just Phoenixy stuff. And Dallas is going to have to ride that out and, and count on Luka. I don't know what to expect because all these games have been blowouts, but um, you're right. It doesn't it doesn't feel shocking now that we've arrived at a game seven because Dallas has just played really well. And like you look at Warriors Grizzlies, I I mean, who would you even pick to win the West right now? I don't I don't have any I don't have any idea. Well, I'd still pick Phoenix, but you know, I I think the one thing that if I'm Dallas, I'm going to definitely make sure Booker. I'm going to trap, right? So, like, when they've done that, I've really liked that because he is the guy, to me, that you play normal defense. You drop. That's playing right into his greatest strength. You know, he's he can make the plays. He can get to the rim. He can pull up. Like, I'm going to make him pass the ball. And, listen, if I go down in, in, in Phoenix uh, – it may be because Bridges or Crowder makes, you know, a combined eight, nine threes, but it's not going to be because Devin Booker gets 33 on highly efficient shooting and we, we foul him because he's attacking. And then with, with Paul, you know, I don't think they'll trap Paul. You know, you know I think they'll switch Paul. I think they'll drop Paul. And I think Chris Paul has got to come out to score tomorrow and then read the defense from, being in a mindset of not trying to, you know, be a cerebral point guard tomorrow, but be in a great point guard, which is come off and let your talent and intelligence take over. And I, I think sometimes, I think all these teams, I think Boston, you know, played too slow in the fourth quarter uh, where they're trying to milk clock. You know, you get down in the shot clock against the better teams you know, this misnomer, they're using the clock. Well, I, I think they're misusing the clock. They've got to attack. And I love when Devin Booker randomly sets in transition or semi-transition. He'll just come up and randomly set a back screen on somebody because, to me, it gets them moving really fast and it gets them love some it. separation. I also think if they put Bullock on him, I, I don't think Bullock can stay in front of him. And and Booker took him one on one a couple of times. If they want, if Dallas wants that matchup, because mostly it's been Finney Smith, but they put Finney Smith, who's been sensational by the way, on CP a lot. I might just spread it out and let Booker take him one on one, and then of course Dallas will adjust. But I, I think he can win that matchup. I think this is going to be a fun game. This has turned into a fun round, and you are on the most fun series tonight in Milwaukee for Game Six. Who you got tonight? Well, I picked Boston all the way. I think Me too. they've been my, my pick to, to win the whole thing. So I'm going to stick with them. Um, again, the last three games, the fourth quarters have been lopsided. Uh, you know, people talk about how, you know, Milwaukee stole one, but I can make the case that Boston stole one, 
you know, the game before. So what I've seen, though, is I, I think in these close games, teams have to convince their players to stop, like, running the clock down too early in these fourth quarters. Like, you know, you get to five minutes and you're watching the point guard, you know, playing more cautiously and, you know, they're starting their sets, trying to run an extra eight seconds off. So they're getting into the their first action at 10 instead of early. And I, I just think Boston, uh, they became very hesitant. If they get the, if they have the lead going into the fourth quarter, I think they have to, you know, encourage smart. No, we're not trying to run clock. We're going to play. And I think smart actually has to find his way, you know, back into the post, like he did at the end of game four, you know, where he can bully smaller defenders. Well, it's funny you say that because Chris Paul is like on the verge of an eight-second violation all the time. He's like half a second away. And it's amazing to think like the seven seconds or less franchise is now like 19 seconds or more. They barely get the ball over half court in seven seconds anymore. And again, when you're playing against switching teams, right, it takes a, a, a little longer to exploit the switch than it does a drop, right? The drop is like you can basically get a decent look off the first action against a drop when you have a legit Hall of Famer like, you know, Chris Paul or a great player like Doncic and Booker. But it's the it's the traps, it's the uh, it's the switching to me that, you know, you need as much time on the clock as you can. And people talk about playing with pace, Zach, and playing with pace is is really good and it's necessary. But everybody equates that just to the full court. To me, that goes to the half court as well. How how quickly you get into what you're running, how hard and how forceful your cuts are, you know, how well are you screening and setting up uh, the screen? All those factors go into half court pace. And I think Phoenix, because they rely on actions more than a lot of teams now, they have to pick up their pace in the half court. Uh, it's going to be a really fun game. I also, by the way, when I said me too about Boston, I meant I picked Boston to win this series. So I, I logic, by the, by the rule of the basketball gods, I must pick Boston tonight because I picked Boston to win the series. I have to pick Boston tonight. I hope we get a game seven. Coach Jeff Van Gundy, your insight is second to none. Thank you so much for your time. I will see you soon. All right, take care.